Section 11, Chapter 10 of Creative Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich, Alexandria, Virginia, 2010. Creative Chemistry by Edwin E. Slauson. Chapter 10. What Comes from Corn? The discovery of America dowered mankind with a world of new flora. The early explorers, in their haste to gather up gold, paid little attention to the more valuable products of field and forest, but in the course of centuries their usefulness has become universally recognized. The potato and tomato, which Europe at first considered as unfit for food, or even as poisonous, have now become indispensable among all classes. New world drugs like quinine and cocaine have been adopted into every pharmacopoeia. Cocoa is proving a rival of tea and coffee, and even the banana has made its appearance in European markets. Tobacco and chicle occupy the nostrils and jaws of a large part of the human race. Maize and rubber are become the common property of mankind, but still may be called American. The United States alone raises four-fifths of the corn and uses three-fourths of the caoutchouc of the world. All flesh is grass. This may be taken in a dietary as well as a metaphorical sense. The graminaceae provide the greater part of the sustenance of man and beast. Hay and cereals, wheat, oats, rye, barley, rice, sugarcane, sorghum, and corn. From an American viewpoint, the greatest of these, physically and financially, is corn. The corn crop of the United States for 1917, amounting to 3 billion, 159 million bushels brought in more money than the wheat, cotton, potato, and rye crops altogether. When Columbus reached the West Indies, he found the savages playing with rubber balls, smoking incense sticks of tobacco, and eating cakes made of a new grain that they called mahiz. When Pizarro invaded Peru, he found this same cereal used by the natives not only for food, but also for making alcoholic liquor, in spite of the efforts of the Incas to enforce prohibition. When the Pilgrim Fathers penetrated into the woods back of Plymouth Harbor, they discovered a cache of Indian corn. So throughout the three Americas, from Canada to Peru, corn was king and it has proved worthy to rank with the rival cereals of other continents, the wheat of Europe and the rice of Asia. But food habits are hard to change, and for the most part, the people of the old world are still ignorant of the delights of hasty pudding and Indian pudding, of hoe cake and hominy, of sweet corn and popcorn, I remember thirty years ago seeing on a London stand a heap of dejected popcorn balls labeled 
novel American confection, please try one. But nobody complied with this pitiful appeal but me, and I was sorry that I did. Americans used to respond with a shipload of corn whenever an appeal came from famine sufferers in Armenia, Russia, Ireland, India, or Austria, but their generosity was chilled when they found that their gift was resented as an insult or as an attempt to poison the impoverished population who declared that they would rather die than eat it, and some of them did. Our Department of Agriculture sent maize missionaries to Europe with farmers and millers as educators and expert cooks to serve free flapjacks and pones, but the propaganda made little impression, and today Americans are urged to eat more of their own corn because the famished families of the war-stricken region will not touch it. Just so the beggars of Munich revolted at potato soup when the pioneer of American food chemists, Bumford, attempted to introduce this transatlantic dish. But here we are not so much concerned with corn foods as we are with its manufactured products. If you split a kernel in two, you will find that it consists of three parts, a hard and horny hull on the outside, a small oily and nitrogenous germ at the point, and a white body consisting mostly of starch. Each of these is worked up into various products, as may be seen from the accompanying table. The hull forms bran, and may be mixed with the gluten as a cattle food. The corn steeped for several days with sulfurous acid is disintegrated and, on being ground, the germs are floated off, the gluten or nitrogenous portion washed out, the starch grains settled down, and the residue pressed together as oil cake fodder. The refined oil from the germ is marketed as a table or cooking oil under the name of mozzola, and comes into competition with olive, peanut, and cottonseed oil in the making of vegetable substitutes for lard and butter. Inferior grades may be used for soaps, or for glycerin and perhaps nitroglycerin. A bushel of corn yields a pound or more of oil. From the corn germ also is extracted a gum called paragol that forms an acceptable substitute for rubber in certain uses. The red rubber sponges and the eraser tips to pencils may be made of it and can contribute some 20% to the synthetic soles of shoes. Starch, which constitutes 55% of the corn kernel, can be converted into a variety of products for dietary and industrial uses. As found in corn, potatoes or any other vegetables, starch consists of small, round, white, hard grains, tasteless and insoluble in cold water. But hot water converts it into a soluble, sticky form, which may serve for starching clothes or making cornstarch pudding. 
carrying the process further with the aid of a little acid or other catalyst it takes up water and goes over into a sugar dextrose commonly called glucose expressed in chemical shorthand this reaction is c6 h10 o5 starch plus h2o water goes to c6 h12 o6 dextrose this reaction is carried out on 40 million bushels of corn a year in the united states the starch milk that is the starch grains washed out from the disintegrated corn kernel by water is digested in large pressure tanks under 50 pounds of steam with a few tenths of one percent of hydrochloric acid until the required degree of conversion is reached then the remaining acid is neutralized by caustic soda and thereby converted into common salt which in this small amount does not interfere but rather enhances the taste the product is the commercial glucose or corn syrup which may if desired be evaporated to a white powder it is a mixture of three derivatives of starch in about this proportion maltose forty five per cent dextrose twenty per cent dextrin thirty five per cent there are also present three or four tenths of one per cent salt and as much of the corn protein and a variable amount of water it will be noticed that the glucose dextrose which gives name to the whole is the least of the three ingredients maltose or malt sugar has the same composition as cane sugar c12 h22 o11 but is not nearly so sweet dextrin or starch paste is not sweet at all dextrose or glucose is otherwise known as grape sugar for it is commonly found in grapes and other ripe fruits it forms half of honey and is one of the two products into which cane sugar splits up when we take it into the mouth it is not so sweet as cane sugar and cannot be so readily crystallized which however is not altogether a disadvantage the process of changing starch into dextrose that takes place in the great steam kettles of the glucose factory is essentially the same as that which takes place in the ripening of fruit and in the digestion of starch a large part of our nutriment therefore consists of glucose either eaten as such in ripe fruits or produced in the mouth or stomach by the decomposition of the starch of unripe fruit vegetables and cereals glucose may be regarded as a predigested food in spite of this well-known fact we sometimes read poor food articles in which glucose is denounced as a dangerous adulterant and even classed as a poison the other ingredients of commercial glucose the maltose and dextrin have of course the same food value as the dextrose 
since they are made over into dextrose in the process of digestion. Whether the glucose syrup is fit to eat depends, like anything else, on how it is made. If, as was formerly sometimes the case, sulfuric acid was used to effect the conversion of the starch or sulfurous acid to bleach the glucose and these acids were not altogether eliminated, the product might be unwholesome or worse. Some years ago in England, there was a mysterious epidemic of arsenical poisoning among beer drinkers. On tracing it back, it was found that the beer had been made from glucose, which had been made from sulfuric acid, which had been made from sulfur, which had been made from a batch of iron pyrites, which contained a little arsenic. The replacement of sulfuric acid by hydrochloric has done away with that danger, and the glucose now produced is pure. The old recipe for homemade candy called for the addition of a little vinegar to the sugar syrup to prevent graining. The purpose of the acid was, of course, to invert part of the cane sugar to glucose, so as to keep it from crystallizing out again. The professional candy maker now uses the corn glucose for that purpose, so if we accuse him of adulteration on that ground, we must levy the same accusation against our grandmothers. The introduction of glucose into candy manufacture has not injured but greatly increased the sale of sugar for the same purpose. This is not an uncommon effect of scientific progress, for as we have observed, the introduction of synthetic perfumes has stimulated the production of odoriferous flowers and the price of butter has gone up with the introduction of margarine. So, too, there are more weavers employed and they get higher wages than in the days when they smashed up the first weaving machines. And the same is true of printers and typesetting machines. The popular animosity displayed toward any new achievement of applied science is never justified, for it benefits not only the world as a whole, but usually even those interests with which it seems at first to conflict. The chemist is an economizer. It is his special business to hunt up waste products and make them useful. He was, for instance, worried over the waste of the cores and skins and scraps that were being thrown away when apples were put up. Apple pulp contains pectin, which is what makes jelly gel, and berries and fruits that are short of it will refuse to gel. But using these for their flavor, he adds apple pulp for pectin, and glucose for smoothness and sugar for sweetness, and, if necessary, synthetic dyes for color. He is able to put on the market a variety of jellies, jams, and marmalades at very low price. The same principle applies here, as in the case of all compounded food products. 
if they are made in cleanly fashion, contain no harmful ingredients, and are truthfully labeled, there is no reason for objecting to them. But if the manufacturer goes so far as to put strawberry seeds, or hayseed, into his artificial strawberry jam, I think that might properly be called adulteration, for it is imitating the imperfections of nature, and man ought to be too proud to do that. The old-fashioned open kettle molasses consisted mostly of glucose and other invert sugars together with such cane sugar as could not be crystallized out. But when the vacuum pan was introduced, the molasses was impoverished of its sweetness, and beet sugar does not yield any molasses. So we now have in its place the corn syrups consisting of about 85% of glucose and 15% of sugar, flavored with maple or vanillin or whatever we like. It is encouraging to see the billboards proclaiming the virtues of caro syrup and mazola oil, when only a few years ago the products of our national cereal were without honor in their own country. Many other products besides foods are made from corn starch. Dextrin serves in place of the old gum arabic for the mucilage of our envelopes and stamps. Another form of dextrin, sold as cordex, is used to hold together the sand of the cores of castings. After the casting has been made, the scorched core can be shaken out. Glucose is used in place of sugar as a filler for cheap soaps and for leather. Altogether, more than a hundred different commercial products are now made from corn, not counting cob pipes. Every year, the factory of the United States work up over 50 million bushels of corn into 800 million pounds of corn syrup, 600 million pounds of starch, 230 million pounds of corn sugar, 625 million pounds of gluten feed, 90 million pounds of oil, and 90 million pounds of oil cake. Two million bushels of cobs are wasted every year in the United States. Can't something be made out of them? This is the question that is agitating the chemists of the Carbohydrate Laboratory of the Department of Agriculture at Washington. They have found it possible to work up the corn cobs into glucose and xylose by heating with acid. But glucose can be more cheaply obtained from other starchy or woody materials, and they cannot find a market for the xylose. This is a sort of sugar, but only about half as sweet as that from cane. Who can invent a use for it? More promising is the discovery by this laboratory that by digesting the cobs with hot water, there can be extracted about 30% of a gum suitable for bill posting and labeling. Since the starches and sugars belong to the same class of compounds as the celluloses, they also can be acted upon by nitric acid with the production of explosives like gun cotton.
nitro-sugar has not come into common use, but nitro-starch is found to be one of the safest of the high explosives. On account of the danger of decomposition and spontaneous explosion from the presence of foreign substances, the materials in explosives must be of the purest possible. It was formerly thought that tapioca must be imported from Java for making nitro-starch, but during the war, when shipping was short, the War Department found it could be made better and cheaper from our homegrown corn starch. When the war closed, the United States was making 1.72 million pounds of nitro-starch a month for loading hand grenades. So, too, the Post Office Department discovered that it could use mucilage made of corn dextrin, as well as that which used to be made from tapioca. This is progress in the right direction. It would be well to divert some of the energetic efforts now devoted to the increase of commerce to the discovery of ways of reducing the need for commerce by the development of home products. There is no merit in simply hauling things around the world. In the last chapter, we saw how dextrose or glucose could be converted by fermentation into alcohol. Since cornstarch, as we have seen, can be converted into dextrose, it can serve as a source of alcohol. This was, in fact, one of the earliest misuses to which corn was put, and before the war put a stop to it, 34 million bushels went into the making of whiskey in the United States every year, not counting the moonshiner's output. But even though we left off drinking whiskey, the distillers could still thrive. Mars is more thirsty than Bacchus. The output of whiskey, denatured for industrial purposes, is more than three times what it was before the war, and the price has risen from 30 cents a gallon to 67 cents. This may make it profitable to utilize sugars, starches, and cellulose that formerly were out of the question. According to the calculations of the Forest Products Laboratory of Madison, it costs from 37 to 44 cents a gallon to make alcohol from corn, but it may be made from sawdust at a cost from 14 to 20 cents. This is not wood alcohol, that is, methyl alcohol, CH4O, such as is made by the destructive distillation of wood, but genuine grain alcohol, ethyl alcohol, C2H6O, such as is made by the fermentation of glucose or other sugar. The first step in the process is to digest the sawdust or chips with dilute sulfuric acid under heat and pressure. This converts the cellulose, wood fiber, in large part into glucose, corn sugar, which may be extracted by hot water in a diffusion battery, as in extracting the sugar from beet chips. This glucose solution may then be fermented by yeast and the resulting alcohol distilled off. 
The process is perfectly practicable, but has not yet been proved profitable. But the sulfite liquors of the paper mills are being worked up successfully into industrial alcohol. The rapidly approaching exhaustion of our oil fields, which the war has accelerated, leads us to look around to see what we can get to take the place of gasoline. One of the most promising of the suggested substitutes is alcohol. The United States is exceptionally rich in mineral oil, but some countries, for instance England, Germany, France, and Australia, have little or none. The Australian Advisory Council of Science, called to consider the problem, recommends alcohol for stationary engines and motor cars. Alcohol has the disadvantage of being less volatile than gasoline, so it is hard to start up the engine from the cold. But the lower volatility and ignition point of alcohol are an advantage in that it can be put under a pressure of 150 pounds to the square inch. A pound of gasoline contains 50% more potential energy than a pound of alcohol, but since the alcohol vapor can be put under twice the compression of the gasoline and requires only one-third the amount of air, the thermal efficiency of an alcohol engine may be 50% higher than that of a gasoline engine. Alcohol also has several other conveniences that can count in its favor. In the case of incomplete combustion, the cylinders are less likely to be clogged with carbon and the escaping gases do not have the offensive odor of the gasoline smoke. Alcohol does not ignite so easily as gasoline and the fire is more readily put out for water thrown upon blazing alcohol dilutes it and puts out the flame, while gasoline floats on water and the fire is spread by it. It is possible to increase the inflammability of alcohol by mixing with it some hydrocarbon such as gasoline, benzene, or acetylene. In the Taylor White process, the vapor from low-grade alcohol containing 18% water, is passed over calcium carbide. This takes out the water and adds acetylene gas, making a suitable mixture for an internal combustion engine. Alcohol can be made from anything of a starchy, sugary, or woody nature, that is, from the main substance of all vegetation. If we start with wood, cellulose, we convert it first into sugar, glucose, and, of course, we could stop here and use it for food instead of carrying it on into alcohol. This provides one factor of our food, the carbohydrate, but by growing the yeast plants on glucose and feeding them with nitrates made from the air, we can get the protein and fat so it is quite possible to live on sawdust, although it would be too expensive a diet for anybody but a millionaire, and he would not enjoy it. Glucose has been made from formaldehyde, and this, in turn, made from carbon, 
hydrogen, and oxygen. So the synthetic production of food from the elements is not such an absurdity as it was thought when Berthelot suggested it half a century ago. The first step in the making of alcohol is to change the starch over into sugar. This transformation is effected in the natural course of sprouting by which the insoluble starch stored up in the seed is converted into the soluble glucose for the sap of the growing plant. This malting process is that mainly made use of in the production of alcohol from grain. But there are other ways of effecting the change. It may be done by heating with acid, as we have seen, or according to a method now being developed, the final conversion may be accomplished by mold instead of malt. In applying this method, known as the amylo process, to corn, the meal is mixed with twice its weight of water, acidified with hydrochloric acid and steamed. The mash is then cooled down somewhat, diluted with sterilized water, and inoculated with the mucor filaments. As the mash molds the starch is gradually changed over to glucose, and if this is the product desired, the process may be stopped at this point. But if alcohol is wanted, yeast is added to ferment the sugar. By keeping it alkaline and treating with the proper bacteria, a high yield of glycerin can be obtained. In the fermentation process for making alcoholic liquors, a little glycerin is produced as a by-product. Glycerin, otherwise called glycerol, is an intermediate between sugar and alcohol. Its molecule contains three carbon atoms, while glucose has six and alcohol two. It is possible to increase the yield of glycerin, if desired, by varying the form of fermentation. This was desired most earnestly in Germany during the war, for the British blockade shut off the importation of the fats and oils from which the Germans extracted the glycerin for their nitroglycerin. Under pressure of this necessity, they worked out a process of getting glycerin in quantity from sugar and, news of this being brought to this country by Dr. Alonzo Taylor, the United States Treasury Department set up a special laboratory to work out this problem. John R. Eoff and other chemists working in this laboratory succeeded in getting a yield of 20% of glycerin by fermenting blackstrap molasses or other syrup from California wine yeast. During the fermentation, it is necessary to neutralize the acetic acid formed with sodium or calcium carbonate. It was estimated that glycerin could be made from waste sugars at about a quarter of its wartime cost, but it is doubtful whether the process would be profitable at normal prices. We can, if we like, dispense with either yeast or bacteria in the production of glycerin. Glucose syrup, suspended in oil under steam pressure, 
with finely divided nickel as a catalyst and treated with nascent hydrogen will take up the hydrogen and be converted into glycerin but the yield is poor and the process expensive food serves substantially the same purpose in the body as fuel in the engine it provides the energy for work the carbohydrates that is the sugars starches and celluloses can all be used as fuels and can all even as we have seen the cellulose be used as foods the final products water and carbon dioxide are in both cases the same and necessarily therefore the amount of energy produced is the same in the body as in the engine corn is a good example of the equivalence of the two sources of energy there are few better foods and no better fuels i can remember the good old days in kansas when we had corn to burn it was both an economy and a luxury for at ten cents a bushel it was cheaper than coal or wood and preferable to either at any price the long yellow ears each wrapped in its own kindling could be handled without crocking the fingers each kernel as it crackled sent out a blazing jet of oil and the cobs left a fine bed of coals for the corn popper to be shaken over driftwood in the pyrotechnic fuel they make now by soaking sticks in strontium and copper salts cannot compare with the old-fashioned corn-fed fire in beauty and the power of evoking visions. Doubtless such luxury could be condemned as wicked nowadays, but those who have known the calorific value of corn would find it hard to abandon it altogether, and I fancy that the western farmer's wife, when she has an extra batch of baking to do, will still steal a few ears from the crib end of chapter 10 end of section 11